Hi, this is Steve Hargadon, and welcome to the Future of Education. It is Thursday, April 12th, 2012, and our special guest is Mark Tucker, the editor of a new book called Surpassing Shanghai, an Agenda for American Education Built on the World's Leading Systems. Mark, thanks so much for taking the time to be here tonight. Uh, my pleasure. Really do appreciate it. Lots of fun. The Future of Education is a Web 2.0 Labs project, web20labs.com, and we express appreciation to Blackboard Collaborate for providing this room. This is the fifth anniversary this year of Classroom 2.0. We're doing some fun things. If you uh, go to classroom20.com and click on Ed Incubator, you can see a special project with PBS NewsHour around their content and uh, revamping their website for students. We've also started the process of crowdsourcing a book. And we've had a number of wonderful, dozens of wonderful um, submissions so far. Go to click on classroom20.com and go to the book or book project. And those are going to start coming out. The deadline for chapters is the 21st of April. So coming up soon, we hope you'll consider contributing. Lots of fun. Uh, coming up at the ISTE show, the great sort of shadow conference we do with the EduBlogger audience, ISTE Unplugged. ISTEUnplugged.com starts Saturday with the all-day unconference, which is now called Social EdCon, used to be called EduBloggerCon, and goes through the whole conference with the Bloggers Cafe, ISTE Live, and a number of other really fun activities, all of which is free. And you don't even need to be registered for the conference to attend the Saturday unconference, thanks to ISTE and their generosity, ISTEUnplugged.com. Coming up as well on April 21st is our first Social Learning Summit. 70 sessions from around the world, uh, all day Saturday, thanks to Discovery Education. It is free and freely available. It's their spring conference that they're opening up to the world and have asked me to coordinate, and it's just been a blast. SocialLearningSummit.com or Classroom20.com and click on the summit link. Coming up in October is our second Future of Libraries conference, thanks to San Jose State University. That will be October 3rd through 5th. Uh, last year, we had over 7,500 registered participants. We expect the same this year, 150 sessions. Just a great look at libraries and librarianship, and again, uh, an open virtual conference. As well, our third annual Global Education Conference, November 12th to the 16th, now sponsored by IRON, which is really terrific for us. Grateful to have a founding sponsor. And again, that's five days, uh, 24 hours a day. 180 countries involved last year. Just a blast. Hope you'll join us for that. Coming up on the Future of Education next week, uh, a couple of fun events. Uh, Tracy Wallen-Daganti on Society 3.0. John Hunter on uh, his new movie, World Peace and Other Fourth Grade Achievements. The date is wrong for that Julie Lindsay and Vicki Davis session. That's actually the 23rd, April 23rd. They're going to talk about flattening classrooms. Uh, Richie Norton talks about resumes are dead on April 25th, Larry Johnson on the Horizon Report, both the history of that report and the newest version. Um, anyway, lots of fun coming up. You can see the full list there and, and more in the pipeline. If you've missed any of the shows, they are all recorded in full Blackboard Collaborate versions and an MP3. Uh, on Tuesday night, we heard from Jennifer Fox, whose book, uh, Your Child's Strength, has led her to building a strengths-based school in Texas. Very interesting to hear about that work. Joseph Granny talked about crucial conversations, sources of influence, positive deviance, and change. Best-selling New York Times author Howard Ryan Gold on NetSmarts. Anyway, lots up there. Hopefully something that's 
valuable to you. So I'm going to give everybody in the room permission right now to indicate where you're participating from. You'll, in just a second, you're going to see icons to the left of that world map. Click on the second one down, which is the star, and click on the map. And feel free to let us know where you're in the chat, where you're participating from, time, temperature, that kind of good stuff. Looks like somebody in France, Australia, North America, Canada. Glad to have somebody from Canada. That will make the story tonight interesting. Wherever you're participating from, or if you're listening to the recording, we sure do appreciate your participating in these conversations. So, Mark, I, I, you know, I need to be sort of thoughtful in my praise of this book, but uh, my notes say to tell you that this was a stunningly valuable book to me. I hope you're getting that feedback from others. I'm getting a whole variety of response to this book. Some of it, some of it, uh, along the lines that you just uh, you just shared with me, and some um, very angry. <laughs> Look, I shouldn't laugh, but why angry? Well, there are a, a, a number of people in this country, many of them who are quite influential with respect to education policy, whose agenda for American education um, is based on uh, several ideas. One of them is that um, the problem that we have in public education is with a bureaucracy which is so immovable that uh, we have to have an education reform plan which has essentially given up on schools as they're currently organized, and we need to rely on market forces to disrupt uh, and, if possible, destroy the system. Uh, there are Others, uh, mostly allied with the first, who believe that um, the way to improve our teaching force is primarily to get rid of our worst teachers, and the way to do that is to identify them using value-added uh, techniques of, uh, of assessment, uh, using standardized tests, and so on. Uh, and I have pointed out in the work that I have done that these are strategies that are not being used by the countries that are achieving by far the best results in the world. And um, not only are the strategies that these people are advocating not being used by the best performing countries, but none of the best performing countries, uh, in effect, our country is not using the strategies that are being used by those with the most successful education systems. We are like ships in the night passing one another. So people who are committed to the current agenda don't like to hear that. I would have said that you sort of cogently discuss uh, 
both of those perspectives in a way that I really appreciate it. And I think we'll get to it in the interview. You know, I consider myself probably to be just fairly progressive when it comes to education and education reform. And I felt like um, what I heard really sort of transcended uh, a lot of the partisan conversation and looked at, you know, it, depending on what our set of goals are, these are things that we can see that others are doing that make sense. But it doesn't necessarily mean that we uh, just sort of um, lock, stock, and barrel absorb them. We have to look at our own situation and then figure out how to bring those best elements into what we care about. I think that's exactly right. Um, the, the technique that we have used to understand what these other countries are doing is called industrial benchmarking. And it originated back in the late 1970s, early 1980s when in, in private industry in the United States when Japanese firms that most Americans had never heard of um, started beating the pants off American corporations, putting many of them out of business. And there's a very famous story. Um, about about the origins of industrial benchmarking in that context. Uh, David Kearns had just been named uh, chairman and chief executive officer of Xerox. And um, they had a very strong relationship with, with uh, Fuji in, uh, in uh, Japan. And one day a number of engineers came, Xerox engineers came back from a trip to Japan, walked into David Kearns' office, and they said, boss, you're not going to like to hear this, but uh, a little company that we had never heard of before named Graco has, uh, has come out with a set of, uh, of uh, low-cost copiers. They are able to produce those copiers in less than half of the time it takes Xerox to produce a comparable copier. And they're able to sell them in the United States for a price which is actually less than our cost of production before we've added marketing, sales, distribution, profit, and overhead, and all that. There's no way that we can compete with them, the engineer said to David. And he looked at them. And he said, you know, guys, they put their pants on one, one leg at a time, just the way you do. You get back on a plane, and go back to Japan, and don't come back until you understand how they do it, and until you can tell me how we can do it even better. And what Kearns was saying was he wasn't interested in having Xerox copy the Japanese. He was interested in having Xerox understand how the Japanese did it, put in their own ideas, and adapt it to Xerox's strengths and weaknesses. So they would end up doing it their own way. But they would match the performance of these other folks. And that's what industrial benchmarking is all about. It's not about copying anybody. It's about understanding how other people get superior results, putting it together in a, in a way that matches your own strengths and weaknesses and enables you to do it even better if possible. There's a little bit of recursion there in the description of industrial benchmarking because not only are you saying that this is an important thing for us to do. I think what you're also saying is that the other countries that seem to be having what we would call success in their education systems are doing industrial benchmarking themselves. And 
this book is a, an example of a foray into industrial benchmarking because you're looking at five countries and saying what you know what are the things that they're doing. So you're so at several levels, industrial benchmarking kind of runs through the whole book. <laughs> I, I really like that image. It is a kind of recursion. One of the things that we've discovered over the years, because we've been looking at the top performing countries for almost 25 years, is that they never stand still. If you think that benchmarking is going to take a photograph of what they're doing and bringing it home, and then you're going to catch up with them, um, <laughs> what, you, what you haven't counted on is that in their own country, they are very worried about all the things that are not going well in their education system, so they're constantly improving it. And you can't catch it with a, with a still camera. You need to have a, a motion picture camera, and, and you need to have it on all the time. Not only that, but as you just pointed out, the countries that are doing best are the best and the most avid benchmarkers in the world. They're following each other all the time. And, um, and so, in a way, what's happening is that the best countries are bootstrapping each other to success. They're constantly sharing with information with each other. They're constantly hosting visitors from other countries. They're constantly ask, asking and answering questions uh, from and, and, and about other countries that they respect, that are doing well. And my own experience in the United States is that until very recently, most Americans, and especially most American education professionals, simply weren't interested in how other countries were educating their kids, much less interested in finding out how they were able to beat us year in and year out. That's beginning to change. But in my own experience, um, this recursive process is absolutely essential to getting really good. And as you pointed out earlier, it's not a matter of copying Japan or copying Finland or copying Ontario or Alberta or British Columbia or New Zealand or Australia. It's a matter of learning from them and putting what you've learned together into a plan that's right for you, whoever you are. So I was at a conference at Stanford uh, about the Finnish education system, and one of the criticisms that came up at the conference was that it's ironic for us to be using a standardized test to argue against standardized testing. But it feels, I think one of the things I learned in the book was that this PISA test is more than just a standardized test. Do you want to describe why those results are valuable? Yes. Um, there are lots of kinds of, of standardized tests. PISA is a particular kind of standardized test. For example, another really quite good standardized test are the tests of mathematics and science competency um, that are used by the TIMS assessment. Those are curriculum-based tests. What they're trying to find out is whether kids have mastered the curriculum that, in effect, the participating countries think that they should be able to master. TIMS is different. TIMS is set up to find out whether kids can take what they have learned in school and apply it to real-world problems of the kind that they might encounter as citizens and students in further education or as workers, whether they can use the knowledge and apply it to typical problems. 
that's a very different kind of standardized test. But there's one other point that is really crucially important, which is that PIMS comes not just with tests that students take, but with a myriad of background questions, which are which are answered by school administrators, national education system administrators, and so on in each of the participating countries. And the questions that are answered are the same for all participating countries. And what that allows researchers to do is to correlate the performance of students and students with particular characteristics with many, many, many different features of the education system and indeed of the society in which those systems are, 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 are embedded. And that enables us to get a very, very rich picture of what's going on, of what kinds of circumstances are correlated with achievement. It also enables us to figure out what achievement looks like. Are, are we looking at, at a few isolated peaks of high achievement? Are we looking at a broad pattern of high achievement? Are we looking at high achievement, which is, a, which is equitable across different student subgroups and so on? All of this rich data makes it possible to learn a great deal about what, um, what it takes to produce uh, very high average student achievement in a country accompanied by uh, real equity. As our organization has looked at uh, other countries' education systems, we have had to, we have, had to had, have our own criteria for what we mean by very successful, because there are obviously many definitions that you could use. And we've concentrated on the PISA countries because we think it's really important not just to have knowledge, but to have knowledge you can use. And second, we think that the rich background data is, is, is an enormously useful resource. So as we have defined high performance, we have defined it in three different ways. Um, one is high achievement, by which uh, we mean, in effect, high average achievement. The second is high equity, by which we mean that the bottom tenth of students is close to the top. And furthermore, and this is very important, we also mean uh, that the degree to which the social economic background of the student predicts the student's achievement is very low. And third, we look at the productivity of the system. How much does it cost per student to produce the results that countries are getting? When you look at those three measures, of excellence in a national or state education system, what we discovered is what others have noted. The United States places just about in the middle on the list of OECD PISA countries, which by the way includes not just first world countries but second world countries. It places just about in the middle of the distribution on student performance. It's pretty mediocre. On the, on the second of our criteria, equity, we score worse. Out of, I think, some 34 countries measured, there are only three that have a worse record than we do with, the, with respect to the degree that um, socioeconomic background predicts student performance. On the fourth measure, we're the worst of all of the countries studied by OECD PISA. 
uh, only Luxembourg, a tiny principality in, in Western Europe, has a higher per-pupil cost than the United States. So when you put it all together, we have mediocre performance. The equity of our results is in the basement. And we, have, we are the most expensive education system in the industrialized world. So it's hard to read that or think about it without feeling you know, a little defensive or looking for ways to rationalize um, our performance versus those countries, or maybe even to find fault with those countries because we that's easier to do than to the deep introspection that might take place. Um, I, I hear that in the book, and, and you actually, I think, do a pretty good job of addressing some of the sort of immediate knee-jerk reactions to those test scores. Do, do you, can, if I ask you to recall a couple of those, are you comfortable doing so? You know, some have to do oh, with sure. uh, poverty and. I, 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 I have for years been standing up in front of audiences of educators, and, and after having said what I just said, there is a whole set of typical responses that I get. One of them, one of them is that we educate everyone, and they educate only in a leaf. That was actually true about 40 years ago of most of the countries with which we compete, not all of them, but most of them. But it is. It is no longer true. In the United States, we our dropout rate, depending on who's doing the counting, it, 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 it ranges between somewhere between 25 and 30 percent of our kids. That, that is to say, before before high school is, is over, some 25 to 30 percent of our kids are gone, never to return. The high-performing countries, the rate average is around 10%, which is to say, by the time high school is over, on the average, 10% of the kids have dropped out. So what we're now looking at is a situation in which it's we who are educating only an elite, and the countries with which we compete are educating everyone. That's just one example. Another that I hear all the time is that, of course, they're all homogenous, and we have an enormous amount of diversity. Um, that, that certainly was true of many of the countries in Western Europe. Most Americans believe it's still true there and in Asia. I'll get to Asia in just a minute. But the reality is that. Um, a lot depends on how you measure, how you think about, how you define diversity. If what you mean by diversity is diversity in racial and ethnic background, you'll find that Canada has a diversity of racial and ethnic background, which is very close to ours, and much better performance overall. If what you mean by diversity is that is all the kids that come from other countries where they speak other languages, uh, you'll find that there are more kids in the Canadian schools that were not born in Canada than there are in the United States that were not born in the United States. By those measures of diversity, it simply isn't true. If you look at if you look at Europe, you'll you'll find in Belgium, for example, that in, in Brussels, just one example. Among many, 
you'll find that uh, more than half the kids in Brussels were born outside of Belgium, and many of them come from very poor countries, mostly in the eastern and southern Mediterranean. But all over Western Europe, you're finding a, a great increase, especially in the cities, in kids from uh, uh, from outside their countries who don't look like the people uh, who have been in those countries for centuries, speak a different language, and are often from very poor countries and back, family backgrounds where there's not much education. Things are changing very fast in Europe. In in um, in Asia, it is certainly in Asia you see great variety. Um, in in Japan, it is certainly true that there are very few people in Japan, just a handful, uh, who who are not native Japanese from a from a from a Japanese stock that goes back many 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 years. So Japan answers to the stereotype, but not many other Asian countries do. Uh, China. We think of China as, as homogeneous. Uh, the, the Chinese don't. There are there is far more diversity of language in in China than there is here in the United States. They read one language, but they speak many, and they have very very different cultural tribal backgrounds in in China. It is a great polyglot community. Singapore, now famous for its performance, um, is about 85% ethnic Chinese, but the rest are families and kids from India and uh, Indonesia, mostly some many of the Malay, um, who until quite recently were referred to by the uh, by the ethnic Chinese as street sweepers, irrespective of what they actually did for a living. So. I think the idea that our problem is uniquely diversity, if you think about that in terms of ethnic background, religion, languages spoken, tribal affiliation, just simply isn't true. The one respect in which I think there is a giant problem related to what some people mean by diversity, which is very real, has to do with um, the diversity in incomes in the United States. This is a truly serious problem for this country, and it is unique among uh, the advanced industrial countries. The United States used to have among the most equal distributions of income in uh, among the industrialized countries. Not only is that no longer true, we now have the most unequal distribution of income and the highest proportion of kids in poverty of any of the industrialized countries. And this is a very serious problem for our schools. But diversity is not a problem. So there's there are many major... others of these, but those are just two. So Mark, uh, there, there, um, before we talk about what these countries actually do that you, you identify are uh, valuable practices, um, I, I, I think it's worth mentioning that in part the book is a refutation of the things that we that we are doing as part of our reform movement that nobody else is doing, which doesn't mean that they're not potentially to be valuable, but it, uh, it does cause us to sort of pause and look at them and say, are they actually things that are likely to succeed? So what are the things that we're doing that you just don't see in the countries that are succeeding? 
Well, you were right earlier. In effect, when we looked at what people have advocated with great enthusiasm in this country for the last 20 years, the principal themes of reform, if you will, we became an equal opportunity dumper on the proposals of the left and the proposals from the right. On the left, we have heard for a long time that if only there was more money, we would be able to do the job. But that's very hard. That's very hard proposition to support when you study the performance of these other countries. When you realize that no country except this tiny principality in, in, in Western Europe spends more money than per capita than we do, it's very hard to argue we need more money when these top performing countries are spending substantially less per student than we are. That's number one. Number two. Uh, the top of the hit parade for most teachers when they're asked about uh, what would help them the most is smaller class sizes. And in fact, this country has been reducing class sizes um, as its as its uh, school reform of choice uh, over the last 20 years to agree to a degree that is unmatched by any other industrialized country. And um, when you look at these other countries, what you find typically is larger class sizes than you find in the United States. So once again, it's very hard to argue for, in, for decreasing class sizes when you stare those statistics in the face. Uh, on the other hand, when you look at the proposals offered by the right, as I was saying earlier, um, you find um, you find you find you find school school choice and charters. Well, these other countries are not taking the caps off their off their charters because they don't have any charters. Uh, that's not how they're solving their problems. Uh, another favorite proposal of the right is is uh, making the world safe for young entrepreneurs, the kinds of people who run. The Kip Charter Schools, or Teach for America, and so on. Um, but when you talk to folks who are running the education programs of the most successful countries in the world, they are deeply puzzled. They don't understand why people responsible running for running a, a national education system would want to let loose young people with very little experience in education to. Produce um, disruptive change in the education system. That's deeply puzzling to them. They're trying to improve their education system, not disrupt it, and so on. Um, these these proposals, competition, choice, charters, um, and especially, I might say. Uh, concentrating on getting rid of your worst teachers by using value-added assessment techniques to identify the teachers who are, are, are by those measures, using standardized tests, best and worst, um, makes no sense to the top performing countries. And that is true, by the way, for several reasons. One has to do with the nature of the tests. They see the tests measuring basically low-level skills. They're interested in much more complex skills. 
So they would never set up a system in which, I'm not imagining this by the way, this is what they tell me, they would never set up a system in which you had high-stakes high, high testing based on measures of basic skills because they understand that what that will do is to focus on low skills and not high skills. Second, they would never use these as large as the principal measures of teacher performance because their idea of what's involved in teacher performance is much more complicated, much richer, if you will. And so they would see what we what we view as our leading technique for improving teacher quality as a brilliant method for setting it back. They're not interested. So in effect, what we found is that these strategies I have mentioned, offered by both the left and the right, have no support at all in the countries that are beating the pants off us. So there's probably a temptation for us to, to, to look at these countries that are having success and uh, to, again, find excuses for why that would not be true success. But as you go through and describe those areas in which there are similarities in these countries, it's a pretty compelling description of a very deep and thoughtful education these students are getting. So again, we have the limitations of time here aren't going to allow sort of drilling down into each one, but can you give us an overview of, of what are the ways that you found that these countries are approaching education that are really valuable for us to be thinking about? Well, yes, let me just take one quick step back and then march forward if I can. One of the other big reasons many teachers and others advance for the experience of other countries being irrelevant is that their cultures are so different from ours. So what we asked ourselves was the following question. Are there principles underlying what these other countries are doing that are the same, irrespective of culture? And the answer is yes. Whether, whether you look at Japan or Finland, utterly different cultures, or say Shanghai and Canada, utterly different cultures, we found that the principles underlying their approaches were very similar and very different from our own. So what were the principles? One was uh, we find them asking themselves, how can we provide more financial resources behind students who are harder to educate than, our, than those who are easier to educate? And the logic for this in their minds is very, very simple. If you are actually serious about getting all kids to high standards, it's a popular slogan in the United States, but it's a, it, it is a design principle in these other countries. If you're serious about it, then what you have to do is figure out where you want them to be at the end of the common education period, that is the, the period in which all kids are meant to be studying the same stuff. And typically that's around the age of 16 or the end of what we think of as a sophomore year in high school. And then you have to work your way backwards. So what do you want them to learn in, in the preceding grade and the one before that, all the way back down to grade one? So you lay out a curriculum framework grade by grade up to grade 10. And you set the standards in effect for each grade at the highest standards in the world because that's what you've set out to do. 
And when you've done that, what you have basically done is to set out a set of standards that we all used to regard as being only for elite kids. And you're saying these standards are now for all kids. That's what these other countries have done. So when they do that, they realize that it's a lot easier for some of those kids from wealthy families, uh, very favored backgrounds to get to those standards than it is for other kids, typically those from minority backgrounds and uh, with less income. So if you're actually going to get all kids to the same standards, what you have to do is to put more money behind those kids than those kids who are easier to educate. And they do that. Second thing that they do is they have either at the state or at the national level what many of them call board examination systems, which is a actually terrible term for what is really a very high level, high quality, in, highly integrated and coherent instructional system. So they specify the subjects kids are supposed to study through these 10 grades. It occupies most of their time. There's very little room typically left for electives. At the high school level, they typically specify the syllabus for the courses in that, in that required curriculum. It's a very, typically a very thoughtful, high-level, broad-based uh, curriculum that is specified by these syllabi. They translate the syllabi into uh, a set of, of, of instructional materials which are designed to support the syllabus. Then they develop their examinations. The examinations are not based on the standards. They're based on the curriculum. So the purpose of the examinations is to find out whether the kids have mastered the curriculum that's specified by the syllabus. None of these countries use the kind of, 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 of uh, computer-scored multiple-choice tests that we use in the United States. They are typically um, hand-scored hand uh, evaluation systems of student performance. Uh, they are, many of them, based on uh, essentially essay performances of the kids. Uh, some of them are open to um, what we would call performances, that is the painting of a painting, the building of a robot, uh, uh, the, the uh, scores on a 20-page on a history paper, that sort of thing. So they're, they're pitched at, as I was saying earlier, they're not pitched at the basic skill level, they're pitched at a very high skill level complex skills, strong skills of analysis and synthesis, ability to write really well, do mathematics at a level that's far beyond what most American students can do, and so on. They have a very strong instructional system. When you visit their schools of education, the teachers are not taught anything at all. They're taught how to teach that curriculum. And they're taught how to teach it to kids from many different backgrounds and teach it very well. So you have a highly integrated very high-powered, very high-quality instructional system. Third, they, um, all of them are very focused on having a high-quality teaching force. And they have all made great changes in their system, typically in the last 10, 15, sometimes 20 years to do it. They have greatly raised the standards for getting into their schools of education. They have moved, essentially, to make it as difficult to get into a school of education in those countries as it is to get into the professional schools and the high status professions. I'm speaking of engineering, accounting, um, uh, the law, medicine, and so on. Um, they have raised teacher salaries 
to make that possible so that they are offering in most of these countries salaries to teachers that are beginning teachers that are roughly comparable to those of beginning engineers. The curriculum in their schools of education by state fiat uh, is designed to make sure that kids coming out of uh, teachers' colleges have really mastered the subjects that they're going to teach. So even in elementary school, in many of these countries, they specify that a teacher will teach either science and mathematics or social studies in their native language. And they must at least minor in those subjects in their elementary or primary schools. So it's impossible for teachers in those countries to get out of school and go to go to work in an elementary school never having taken they're going to, never having taken a a college level mathematics course. If they're going to teach mathematics at the elementary level, they would have taken many college level mathematics courses. That's just one example. It's also the case in these countries that they make sure that their prospective teachers have really mastered their craft. So they insist that they spend at least a year doing just that. Beyond mastering the subject, they need to spend at least a year mastering their craft. There are no alternative routes in any of these top performing countries to becoming a teacher. You have to master your craft. There is no idea that you can become a teacher by taking a few weeks or a couple of months of, of crash courses in, in how to be a teacher. In most of these countries, uh, and this is really very important, they are moving teacher education out of their third tier higher education institutions and into their research universities. And they're doing that for a whole host of reasons. They're doing it to improve the faculty, to attract the kind of student into teaching that they want to have in teaching. They are, they are in, in most of these countries concentrating on giving teachers research skills. It's easier to do in a research university. And the reason they're doing that is because they want teachers to be true professionals. They want teachers to be not the subject of somebody else's research, but people who actually do their own research to improve their own practice and do it constantly. Um, in many of these countries, uh, you don't you, you, you can graduate, you can get your license, and you can go to work in schools, but typically uh, you get a very reduced teaching load in the first year, and you work under the very close supervision, in fact, an apprenticeship to a master teacher, which relates to another feature of their systems. Uh, they typically are they're all moving toward a system of having uh, what we in this country call career ladders uh, for teachers, uh, so that teachers, as they as they get better and better at their work, have a crack at moving up a ladder, which ends in, the, in some form of um, master teacher status. Uh, it's often the case that master teachers are paid as much or more than school principals. Uh, and they are, they are treasured in these countries as very important resources for training teachers, building curriculum, uh, uh, improving the school as a whole, and so on. Those are just some of the things that they're doing about improving teachers, but when you take it all together, what it really means is turning turning uh, teaching from a blue collar occupation into a into a true high status profession, and that's a that's an anchor for the strategies of all of these top performing countries. They're doing it somewhat differently country to country, but that's the trajectory that they are all on. Uh, I could go on in 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 surpassing Shanghai. I share about ten of these major strategies that these countries are using. But the ones that I just shared with you are particularly important. So that for me was the one kind of irony of the book, which was um, these systems are the results of decades of work. 
they depend on having some kind of uh, independent group that's, uh, that's coherent in its ability to continue to affect these improvements regardless of the political changes. There's an enormous investment in teachers. Um, how can we possibly surpass Shanghai when we're looking at a task that would take us um, quite a long time to accomplish, even if we could create the cultural consensus to do so? So uh, one of the countries that we looked at was Canada, and in particular Ontario province. Um, and we relate a story about Ontario. Uh, the, the, the current premier there was just elected to his third four-year term. Um, so he has just completed his second four-year term. So a little over eight years ago, he took over in a situation uh, which politically was not unlike the situation currently in Wisconsin. Uh, here in the United States. Uh, the previous premier had really gone after the teachers and their unions in a big way, attacked them frontally, uh, much as Scott Walker has in, in, um, in, in Wisconsin. And uh, teachers had reacted as you would expect them to in this situation. And, and there was a, a, a kind of a, a low-grade war going on in, in Ontario. Uh, and the current premier uh, campaigned against that premier uh, on a very different platform. He, 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 uh, he campaigned on a platform of working with, not against the teachers. And he offered the teachers, uh, in effect, a new deal. He offered to work with them to find out what it was that they thought they needed in order to greatly improve the performance of kids in Ontario, particularly the kids in the lower half of the distribution. And he, he in particular, he wanted to know what kind of capacity that they thought they needed to do a better job. And uh, eight years later, Canada was among the top performers in, in the OECD rankings, uh, not alone on the strength of Ontario, although Ontario is, is the most populous, process, most populous province in Canada by a good deal. Uh, but it was true that um, uh, similar strategies were being used in uh, in Alberta and, and British Columbia. Now, I, I'm not here to say that that alone did it. Um, what you find in Canada is that about 20 years ago they had the same school finance system we have here, local control and finance of schools. But about 20 years ago, in the in the big provinces that I just mentioned. All of that changed. And um, it changed not because some liberal premiers thought it would be a good idea to do it for, uh, to equalize school finance. It happened because taxpayers produced a revolt against increasing property tax rates they just couldn't afford. And conservative premiers changed the system. So um, they responded by proposing that the province assume the full cost of education that would no longer be born at the local level. And that, of course, when, when the money came from all over the province and was distributed at the province level, it, was no, it could no longer be distributed on the basis of, of local ability to, to pay property taxes. They weren't there anymore. So uh, uh, school finance became much more equalized in Canada, much fairer, much more like what I have described in the top performing countries. That is, that is something we have not done yet, but if it could be done in Canada, I see no reason why it could not at least in principle be done 
in the United States, and that actually happened. When it happened, it happened quickly. I might say, by the way, that when it happened, because these were conservative premiers, the trade was that there would be the, 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 the province would assume responsibility for finance, but it would also cut the total level of funds available to the schools. And I might point out that it was in this period, after total funding for education had been reduced, that the scores of, of the kids improved so substantially that Canada joined the top 10. But much more important, teachers in Canada became the partners of those designing school reforms, not their adversaries. That was, that was very, very important. The other thing I think that is important to recognize is that when young people in Canada want to get into a teacher's college and they cannot get into one in Canada, what they routinely do is head south across the border because they know they can get into teacher's colleges here in the United States. So prior to eight years ago, Canada had done quite a lot to raise the standards for getting into teachers' colleges in that country uh, and, and, and produce a more rigorous um, and effective curriculum in their teachers' colleges. Now, I think all of these things could be done here in the United States in a period of 8 to 10 to 12 years if we put our mind to it because you can see these things happening on that kind of time scale in Canada, which is not only our closest neighbor, but probably the country that's most like us in the world. So, Mark, so this was sort of the lifeline that you throw out in the book, which is the example of Canada. And I wish I hadn't done so, but I actually kind of made a list of reasons why I wondered if we could actually pull that off. And, and at the top of that list was this question about uh, the, our cultural narrative of competing interests lead to the best outcome. And if you tried to do anything to our, our way of financing education, would you get pushback from financial, the financial elite who would say, you know, this isn't fair to my child? Because clearly, in these systems that you've described, the focus is on the underperforming rather than the best performing. Well, that's a really interesting point. I don't think that's entirely true. That is, if you look... Ah, this gets us back to one of the other myths that I begin the book with. Uh, many, many people have said in, in recent years, if you just took the poor kids out of the equation in the United States, performance in the United States would be as high as it is in the top performing countries. I, 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 I've met many, many people who are absolutely convinced that's true. It is not true. The fact of the matter is that there are tables in the OECD reports that show what proportion of kids in any given country are in each of the deciles of performance, uh, the, the PISA deciles of performance. So in other words, the PISA defines top performance, it defines medium performance, it defines bottom performance, and it divides all that into deciles. So what you find is that the proportion of kids in the top decile and the next decile down and the next decile down are a lot lower in the United States than they are in the top performing countries. That is, our top performing kids are not performing as well as their top performing kids are. We're not even close. So what you find is that performance in the countries that I'm talking about is not just improving 
for the lower performing kids, it's improving right along the whole spectrum. And the distance between their top performers and their bottom performers is a lot less than it is in the United States. And in my view, this stands to reason. Because what they've done is figure out how to, how to get top performing teachers in all of their schools. And these, these are increasingly, basically what you, in American terms, what you're talking about is getting the kinds of kids who go in to teach for America on a vast, vast scale. And you're going, to see, you're going to see the top performers go up, and you're going to see the bottom performers go up, too. We don't have to make that choice. So the, the other things on my list were that we have kind of a distrust of government. Um, I think we maybe even are a little suspicious of the value of education. A lot of our heroes are people who didn't conform to traditional education. And you know, I wondered, how do we address some of these things specifically? And I noticed in the book that you look at these solutions, it, it are solutions for the United States being driven at the state level. Is that in part to address some of the ways in which we think uniquely about governance? It is. Uh, I think the chances of us doing this at the national level are approximately zero. And I'm not even sure if they were good that I would advocate that we do that. I like the idea of having a, a national laboratory of states. There's a lot to be said for that. I do like the idea of having national standards, but I also like the idea of having many, many different ways of going at them. So for those reasons, plus the, the much more practical reason that it's the only way we're going to get there, um, we have pointed out that most of the countries that we have studied are the size not of the United States, but of individual American states. And there's no reason in constitutional law why any state can't do what any of these countries have done, except the reasons that you put forward. <laughs> that is, um, there are powerful social forces which make it very hard for us to do this. In many of our states, most of them in fact, um, most of the authority and power of the state in education has been delegated to the local level. And that's highly prized in the United States. But the same was true in Canada. So there I think, although it would be extremely difficult, and in some states impossible, to change the way we finance schools, I think in others it might be easier than we might think. Um, in Michigan some years ago, uh, when John Engler was governor, they just got to the point where property taxes were going for the roof and nobody could stand it anymore. They, they, uh, the state assumed most of the responsibility, I think all of it actually, for funding education. Um, there are now many states where the state used to, used to fund substantially less than 50% than uh, of the cost of education, the rest being funded at the the majority being funded at the local level. But over the years, states have, have assumed more and more responsibility. So now in a number of states, the state already is funding more than half of the total cost of education in the state. In some states, it wouldn't take more than another 10 or 20% for it to fund everything except what the federal government funds. So I, I think these things are possible. But I do think the points that you made are valid. They are absolutely valid. This, there are a lot of people in the United States who value 
schooling but not education, which is to say they value the credentials that education provide, but not but but not the education that comes from schooling. And that's that that's a serious problem because what is being demanded now in the kind of economic environment that we're going into is genuine education, not just credentials. And that 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 is no question a problem. The, the question of local control is a problem. Uh, all of these are problems. But I, I would just say to you, we actually don't have a choice. We could be optimistic or pessimistic about our about our chances of success here. But it's not as if there was an alternative. If we if we don't find a way to do in our own way what these other successful countries have done, we will be in, in a backwater of history, and it won't take very long. The, the dynamics of the global economy now are rewarding skill and knowledge to a degree that they never have before. And that's, that's just a function of the way the global economy is going. What, what, what in a nutshell is happening is two things. For the first time in the history of the world, people on one continent are competing directly for jobs with people on another continent. That, that's what the reduction in the cost of transportation and telecommunication has done. So we're now finding that people in poor countries like China and India are producing large numbers of people with very high skills. And they charge a lot less for those skills than ours do. And global companies, small, medium, and big companies, can source those people in those countries and have them go to work for them by internet and take advantage of the low price that they charge for their labor. The other thing that's happening is that, is that automation is increasing with every passing year. More and more and more jobs are being automated. And these are not just low-skilled jobs. Many of them are high-skilled jobs that require routine work. So these two forces are, are, are joining together to create a world in which people in high-wage countries like ours with relatively low skills have no future. So, so we don't have a choice. If, if we don't find a way to do in our own way, what these other countries have done, we will be toast. So I actually didn't leave the book feeling as discouraged as that last note was. It, for me, it felt like part of the story here is that we are victims of our own success, that we've been successful benchmarkers previously, mm -hmm. that we've, we were very successful more than anybody in the industrial manufacturing model that we're likely to face a period of failure now. And so kind of our job is yep. to look for uniquely American qualities that we can build on to rebuild a consensus around education. And it's going to be hard, but what your book has given us is a framework for thinking about how we rebuild that consensus, because that moment is coming where we're going to have to do it. Well, you know, I've gotten, uh, since the book came out, I've gotten calls from two chief state school officers, both of them backed up by their governors, 
who have said, you know, Mark, in the last chapter in your book, you kind of lay it all out, piece by piece, what these other countries have done in just a few pages. And you've done it. When we looked at it, these folks from these states have said, those are all things we can do. We can do those things. Will you come and talk to us about it? And I said, sure. And that gave me enormous encouragement. I mean, it's one thing for me to sit in the privacy of my study writing this stuff, and it is quite another thing for chief state school officers and governors to say, we're going to do this. They have to take a kind of heat I will never have to take. They will have to figure out how to make it happen in an intensely political environment. So when they say to me, you laid all this out in a very practical way, we can do this. I think to myself, you know, this is the United States. This is the country I love. This is the country that Winston Churchill described when he says, you know, <laughs> Americans, Americans will try everything, and they, 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 they may not get it right until the very last minute, but they will. He, 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 had, a, he had a confidence born of a, of a keen student of the United States. He, 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 he knew that we always pull it out in the darkest moment. And I don't see why that should stop, and I don't see why we can't do this. If all these other countries could do it, why on earth can we not? We have a history of being able to undertake enormous social change that few other countries in the world have got. And unless we've lost our mojo, we ought to be able to do it again in this field because it is so important, and I don't think we have. So we've done something I rarely ever do, which is we've allowed the session to go a few minutes over, and I'm really glad we did. Um, so the book is Surpassing Shanghai. The author is Mark Tucker. Mark, this has really been fun. There's so much in the book that we didn't get to. I'm giving this a really high recommendation. Please, this is a book worth reading. I hope that you'll that you'll uh, consider buying it and doing so. Mark, thanks for coming on tonight. Thank you so much. I actually felt like that was a very encouraging finish, and I'm glad we got to that place. So uh, thanks to those of you who've attended. Appreciate having Mark on board. Any final words, Mark? No, just go for it. <laughs> Coming up next week, Tracy Wyland Aginti on Society 3.0, John Hunter on World Peace, and then Julie Linden, Vicki Davis is actually the next week. I'll change that date. Thanks for attending. Thanks to Mark. Uh, really appreciated this tonight. Um, surpassing Shanghai. Take care, everybody. Have a great night or a day, depending on where you are.